This is episode 7 of DNA of Games, the podcast dedicated to highlighting the disabled and neurodiverse in the games industry. I'm your host Chris and this podcast series was created to chat with other disabled and neurodiverse people in the industry as a way of normalising the discussion around disability and neurodiversity. I hope this podcast helps you see other identities often left out of the discussion in games and really help encourage others to uh, find their place within the games industry. And then I say to everybody, like, this is me when I go into my editing suite and I'll just, like, chop out the first bit because it's me just saying anything random or things like, oh, no, I need to <laughs> chop that off and get into the proper introduction of the episode. <laughs> so, hi, I'm Chris and welcome back to another episode of DNA of Games. That's a disability, neurodiversity and accessibility of games podcast, uh, really exploring uh, the different disabled and neurodiverse people that work in games. Uh, with me today, I have uh, Dan Pearson, who... Um, works, I guess, works in marketing now. <laughs> I don't know why I've got business development in my head, but it used to be business development. <laughs> as well as in the past, you worked as a journalist uh, in your sort of career, but I'm sure you'll you know, go into that <laughs> more detail than I could. And uh, yeah, you have a, I guess, a, a mix of neuro, no, neurodiversical, neurological <laughs> conditions. Yeah, I'm not sure what the plural is. Yeah. <laughs> and that's come of what makes you you <laughs> um so yeah um welcome down hi <laughs> hey how you doing thanks for having me <laughs> i don't know if you want to give a bit of an introduction to yourself uh, which is a bit better than my introduction <laughs> <laughs> sure yeah uh yeah my name's dan pearson i'm uh, 42 i've been in the industry now for goodness 16 years i think um since 2006 um i did my first 11 years or so uh, as a journalist working at eurogamer and gamesindustry.biz um and then kind of moved out into the uh, sort of games production publishing side i was working at um Square Enix very briefly after uh, being a journalist where i was a, an internal business editor um i never really fully worked out what that job meant in the six months I was there, hence me only being there six months. Uh, and then I went to work for a guy called Jazz Perwell for uh, a couple of years. Uh, he's a lawyer. I'm sure many of you would have uh, come across him. He's a, a lovely chap, always willing to um, spend his time on other people's issues. Um, sometimes he doesn't even charge you £750 an hour for it, which is pretty good for a lawyer. Um, worked for him for uh, a couple of years doing business development um, until his business was acquired uh, and took redundancy and then set up my own own um, consultancy for about uh, a year, 18 months, um, just doing kind of uh, marketing, copy, communications consultancy for various people. Uh, and then after a little while of that was taken on full time by one of the uh, companies I was consulting for a company called Genvid, um, which is an American company that makes uh, an SDK for adding interactivity to video streams. Um, so we've been working for them full time now for uh, around a year, I think. Um, so yeah, it's uh, it's been, been an interesting journey. Like uh, I still don't know whether I would. I still hesitate. Sort of when someone says, "What do you do?" I don't still don't say I make games because I've I've never done a bit of coding in my life. But I've I've worked around the edges, and you know I, I very much support the idea that everyone who works in games makes games. Frankly, I think all of those parts are necessary for it. But um, mm. yeah, I've I've never quite I would never introduce myself as someone who makes games. I suppose. <laughs> I've definitely been learning myself now that uh, I'm a part of uh, the Tentacle Zone Incubator, uh, creating my own game uh, of the 
components in games that I'm just so weak at, whether that's like marketing or like, you know, having that like social community growth and, you know, all those like business development bits that I kind of like <laughs> reluctantly do. <laughs> and it's yeah. either, like, yeah, that's just as much as going into making a game as, you know, like you say, writing a line of code or, you know, creating an art asset. So yeah, you're right. You know, it's, it all goes into it. <laughs> yeah, and I think you know it's important to remember that you know no matter no matter what you think of your own role, and and you know you might be sitting there thinking, oh god, these these programmers must think I'm an idiot, or you know these artists must think I'm uh, incredibly clumsy, or, or whatever. You know, like there's always somebody looking at your job, going, that person is working magic, and I don't understand how they do it. So um, yeah, I think that's that's a really important thing to remember. No matter what you're doing, somebody is looking at it and going, I couldn't do that. Mm, yeah, that's fair. That's a nice uh, sentiment to put in. But yeah, people. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I work in uh, as a producer, so yeah, you understand me. Sort of like <laughs> people going, "Oh, like oh, so and so." I was like, "Oh, I can't never do that." <laughs> I mean, yeah, that's yeah, that's, it's one of the things that I um, yeah really admire is that kind of um, production role, organization, planning. You know, part of my neurodiversity is that I am absolutely awful at that. So I look at these people kind of juggling a, a thousand different streams of, of information and, and organizing several different uh, schedules and getting all that stuff done and it, I, I find that absolutely mind-blowing so yeah it's interesting you bring that up because uh, in our previous episode with Harriet uh, her uh, neurodiversity kind of helped her become more organized <laughs> so it's the way that she sort of bring it you know she loved that sort of like you know sort of like i guess that like lots of little things happening and like organizing it all for the betterment of the team like you know hence why she is a producer <laughs> like you know she loved that sort of like uh complexity and organizing things i guess and uh, i guess that's the way she uh her i guess like adhd autism sort of really yeah absolutely i mean for, for for some people with hhd it can be a huge uh hugely calming influence right and a very very kind of uh helpful kind of cathartic outlet for it i think of that kind of hamster wheel brain energy of just going right i'm going to organize stuff um i i wish i was able to channel minds as usefully <laughs> frankly <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's like uh, yeah and that's kind of a, a great point of like you know thing you know conditions affect people differently and you know that's why you know you can't just have one example of like so neurodiversity adhd because it affects people differently and that's why you know it's great to have things like this like where we can actually you know see and talk to people <laughs> and see that you know like you know you may not identify with one person who's got adhd but you might be like you know it might be someone like you like oh yeah i've got adhd and my mind's just all over the place so i'm terrible at, like keeping my like, plan together <laughs> but yeah like yeah. Um, it's good to take away into sort of um i don't know if you want to talk about like you know the different sort of neurodiversities that you sort of identify with or have diagnosed with um you know if you if you care to share yeah, sure, absolutely. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's something that I was only I've, I was only diagnosed with ADHD, uh, which is sort of my primary prim, primary neurodiversity um, when uh, that was about two and a half years ago, I think. Um, so I had sort of I'd always struggled with concentration. I'd always struggled with focus. Uh, when I was a kid, I was hugely hyperactive. You know, I was always running around, just constantly talking, constantly getting into trouble, like a lot of kids, but uh, in a very kind of uh, 
very kind of concentrated way. Um, and I think as a child, because that was never suggested as a possibility to me, you know, I was, uh, I just learned not to, um, not to behave that way, I guess. And I kind of really enforced those social norms on myself in a way that wasn't very healthy and certainly wasn't dealing with the problem, you know. So I taught myself that you absolutely can't um, talk over people, you know, you don't uh, you don't interrupt people, which was a really hard thing. It's one of the, the kind of uh, key things about ADHD is you just kind of have this flow of information in your brain that you just have to get out, otherwise it disappears. Um, that had been the case for me even at, at primary school, you know, when I was, I have absolutely terrible handwriting. And I remember my teachers saying, you know, just, just slow down. You're trying to write too fast. And sort of thinking, well, if I don't get it out, if I don't write it, it's gone. You know, yeah. like my brain's moving twice as fast as my hand can. Uh, and if it doesn't go on the page, then it vanishes. Because that's another thing about my, my sort of ADHD is that uh, I have a dozen sort of threads of thought uh, running at once but uh, as soon as they pass out of the kind of lens of my consciousness they may as well have just never been there basically mm. it's extremely hard to remember stuff so even at that point you know there was a lot of the the aspects of it that were affecting me um, and for a long time you know I think as a kid I just internalized that and I just thought oh I'm just you know I'm just annoying or you know I'm just I need to calm down I need to shut up you know why am I like this um, as I got older, it sort of started to manifest in things like struggling to plan, struggling to organize things at work. Um, you know, I, I think it's uh, it's quite common for a lot of, of ADHD, ADHD folks to be good at school up to a certain point, you know, mm. because you're very good at context switching, you're very good at taking in large streams of information and spewing them out again in simplified ways, which, you know, for uh, everything up to sort of A-levels is pretty much how you're taught. You get a load of stuff thrown at you and they go, do this out in a vaguely kind of useful way later so you know school was quite easy up until that point and the things i was good at I was like okay this is great things i wasn't good at immediately i was like no nah, i'm just never going to ever do that you know if mm. it's any effort to get good at it nothing so then you go you get to uh university and a level sort of level and suddenly things get a bit harder you're asked to do a lot more on your own um and that was just really kind of difficult to deal with to suddenly go from this is the thing that i'm good at this is the thing i've been praised for there's all this other stuff that i've been internalizing as my fault and being bad at and then suddenly that thing that you're good at becomes very very hard as well so mm. i think that was that was a difficult stage because i was still uh, imposing all of those kind of social pressures on myself and making all those judgments about myself but suddenly the one thing i thought was okay at was 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 really hard so I think at that point, it just became a bit of a a burden, really. You know, like I say, I just kept internalizing more and more stuff and saying, oh, I'm useless at this, I can't plan. At that point, you know, it's looking back on it, I realized how much effect it was having on relationships. You know, you, you if you're with a partner and you obviously want to plan for the future, you want to, uh, from anything like organizing a meal for an anniversary to booking a holiday to, you know, thinking about families, mm -hmm that stuff was just a complete anathema to me. You know, the idea of thinking about anything that's happening more than three hours in the future. Yeah. You know, I just, I have no concept of that. I don't understand why anyone would want to do that. Uh, and obviously that's intensely frustrating for someone who's like, well, I just, I just want to book a meal. You know? And it's like, <laughs> okay, but we'll, we'll just do that 10 minutes before we leave on the day, you know, um, which obviously doesn't work. So I, I completely get that. So I'd sort of gone through a very long time through this with, with various other 
issues as well. A lot of a lot of anxiety, a lot of chronic depression, um, a lot of uh, you know just general feelings of uh, feeling quite kind of outside of things. I think I, I developed quite a strong um, tendency for disassociation. You know of just uh, what some people call the kind of third person view of yourself. You know, it's almost like you're, you're watching yourself going about your life. Um, and because you have this kind of aspect of maintaining a level of control over yourself and not allowing yourself to be who you are, because, you know, you've taught yourself that these are failures that you need to hide. Um, it's, it's very easy to just kind of see your actual self as you present to others as this sort of kind of puppet that you're directing the whole time. And, and that's mm. that for a long time was was very mentally unhealthy for me i think you know i, I was distancing myself uh i was having this sort of disassociative behavior um i felt very unsettled ungrounded uh i'd realized that a lot of the my what i thought was sh just shortcomings were kind of affecting others around me mm. so when i got to uh about uh yeah 2020 which obviously was not a great year for anybody <laughs> frankly um but in the space of about uh i think probably about six months i uh obviously the, the pandemic started um i got covid very early on i think uh i turned 40 um i uh got made redundant i had to start my own business i separated from my wife uh which was you know a lot of which was down to adhd issues and i got this adhd diagnosis yeah. uh, you know all during this kind of global pandemic at a point where I was living in a uh, uh, as transferred in the end living in a house in the countryside on my own miles away from anyone yeah um, don't drive so I couldn't go to see anyone and even if I could it was under lockdown so you know I just got this diagnosis um, just before a lot of that sort of happened so it was a really tumultuous time you know it was awful really kind of hitting rock bottom around that time mm. but weirdly getting that diagnosis um, really actually helped to clarify a lot of stuff because it put a label on it it gave you something to aim at yeah it meant that suddenly all of these things you know particularly you know the the stuff that had played a part in the, the the kind of collapse of my marriage was suddenly like oh okay that's that's not just me being an asshole or me being lazy like <laughs> this is why that's happening and, and this is how you know i can can look at that through that lens so yeah i i only ended up getting that diagnosis um through following someone on Twitter, actually, a woman called Lauren, uh, who used to work um, on Fable uh, at Lionhead, uh, who was talking about it on her Twitter about the kind of um, the symptoms that she'd had, her approach to getting diagnosis. And I was reading it, thinking, yeah, that's every single point there it makes sense, you know. Uh, and I was having therapy at the time anyway, so I, I spoke to my therapist about it and said, what do you think? Uh, we went through the DSCM um, kind of criteria for it, which is just the, 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 the standard kind of psychological um, okay. uh, kind of criteria. Went through and it's like, yeah, 100%, you know, looking back on stuff in your childhood, stuff you find difficult now, it's absolutely certain. Um, spoke to my GP about it and they said, it, you know, we'll have to put you in touch with a, a right to choose. So it's a private service that is kind of uh, held by the NHS to, to, to deal with this sort of thing. I went with a thing called Psychology UK. Had an, a video interview with them, got a uh, diagnosis immediately, went through titra titration on all of the available medications. Yeah. Nothing worked. 
So the other issues that I've had over the long period, I've had um, insomnia all of my life, chronic, uh, chronic insomnia, um, a lot of anxiety, um, and all of the medication kind of accentuated those. Basically, the the, the yeah. stuff I tried first, the Lvance, um Oh, sorry, I tried the methylphenidate first, which just made me feel awful. It was just really intense anxiety a lot of kind of tension mm -hmm. absolutely no focus nausea just horrible uh and then elvance which is a, a dexamphetamine which helped focus but i just wasn't sleeping at all i was getting you know two hours of sleep a night or something so it just mm -hmm. felt awful uh and then a couple of others called uh guanfacine and atomexetine both of which made me feel dreadful one of which made me feel super paranoid and depressed gave me weird hallucinations another one i was just waking up at like two o'clock every morning and not going back to sleep feeling mm. sick so after this kind of feeling of oh wow i can deal with this i'm getting treatment for this this is a thing i can i can sort out particularly as when i first spoke to them they said oh yeah we'll you know if we can fix this it will fix your insomnia you'll get on much better at work you'll be better at, uh, at relationships you'll be happier you'll you know all of this stuff and it was it was kind of crushing to go through that that process of titration because mm -hmm. as anyone who's done it knows like these are not these are not kind of casual pharmaceuticals they're serious they're heavyweight stuff they have a real effect on you yeah um, i guess it's just an interesting point because i guess people who would just assume that obviously once you get an adhd diagnosis it's kind of just oh here's your magic pill <laughs> it'll balance you out and you know make everything easier for you but it's like you yeah. say you know there's so many different variations you know medications that do different things or different levels like you say yeah. they could affect people differently and it, <laughs> yeah yeah i think people don't um acknowledge that as much like you know it's actually you know it will take a while before you get to that like manageable place for yourself yeah um, yeah and, absolutely. You know, we, we see it a lot on the uh industry slack with people sort of discussing what medication they're on for their adhd and people comparing notes all the time with each other <laughs> yeah 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 yeah, absolutely yeah and I, I mean when i when i say all that about how difficult i found it i i really don't want to put anyone else off trying it because you know i had um weirdly a couple of friends who were diagnosed around the same time as me and we all you know went through the same process and we all found different ways through it you know one of my friends immediately on the first the first thing he tried which was the zagatin the meth methylphenidate he was like this is amazing everything's fixed it's brilliant i just i can do everything <laughs> uh and another friend who who you know went stuck on l vance and found exactly the same for that so you know some people will will go straight into that thing they try the first thing and it's amazing for them and, that, and that's that's incredible um so yeah, that was it. Was it was a rough, rough six months, I think. You know, and this was coming after all of that other stuff. So this was yeah. in the first six months of me trying to run my own consultancy business. First time I've ever done that. As I say, living alone, having separated from my wife, starting to go through that kind of divorce mm. procedure. Um, global pandemic just getting worse <laughs> and yeah. worse. Um, yeah. Just um, yeah. to sort of interject with the, you know, obviously all the situation what was going around for you you know and you get this diagnosis did you did your outlook on the diagnosis um become more negative because a lot more negative things were happening around you or was it kind of a positive like you know sort of a, a ray of sunshine to be like well actually this could help yeah it's i think i sort of vacillated between the two i mean during the titration period which lasted a long time right so that, that was probably about six months um it often depended on what i was taking at the time frankly um because some of it 
really kind of surfaces the 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 things in it and you kind of really focus on the the symptoms of the adhd uh and at that point i think it kind of helped because it just focused in on that thing you know it didn't give me much time to think about everything else it gave me a relatively immediate and what seemed like a solvable problem at the time whereas all of the other stuff was just this background radiation of stress that i knew i couldn't do anything about yeah um so actually to have a thing where i could go right i need to solve this it might have uh, ramifications everything else positive or, or whatever but i need to fix this and this is how i do it so at the beginning it really really helped it took my mind off things gave me focus gave me some hope as i kind of rattled through the different medications you know i, I started feeling less good about it um because i think as as anyone who's had chronic health problems knows uh and this wasn't the case for my dhd actually you know once i addressed it i got it treated very quickly but the process of troughs and peaks of getting diagnosis failing a, a treatment going back and the, the doctor just being like yeah we've kind of done what we can i mean i, I had a similar thing I, I i finally got a diagnosis for insomnia actually about uh seven or eight months ago after about 30 years of talking to doctors about it saying you know mm -hmm. this is really affecting my quality of life i'm exhausted i'm ill all the time uh you know I, i've looked it up it definitely shortens your lifespan and they're like yeah no yeah it will um sorry you know because like we, we're not going to give you uh, uh anything that could be habit forming um we also just think probably you're sleeping more than you really are and you're fine and have you tried not watching telly just before bed it's like yeah I, 40 years of this i have i've tried all that finally got the the diagnosis for that and again it was the same thing you know they said you've got chronic insomnia you've got a thing called a lapse circadian rhythm where your brain gets out of cycle with the with the, the sun cycle and also you've got obstructive um apnea um we can't do anything about any of that so great it's like well so i'm still going to only be getting three or four hours sleep a night yep probably um it's certainly going to be a couple of years wait before we can try and do anything about that so um yeah i think that that process of of finding the diagnosis finding that hope finding something to focus on and then basically being told sorry you're one of the people we can't do anything about is is crushing at the time yeah um and i think honestly I, i'd have really really struggled with that if i hadn't have been having the kind of therapy at the same time and that was a, a huge positive impact on that yeah it was i was very lucky in that the therapist i was seeing already had kind of done quite a lot of work with children with adhd so he had a good working knowledge of it he understood how it could have uh, these kind of ramifications for mental health and, and and various other things and the various ways it can kind of permeate your life mm -hmm. so that was really really helpful and so to have someone sort of talk through the options for dealing with it without medication um meant yeah. a great deal and for someone to kind of to help you I'm always very cautious about the idea of putting this stuff in a positive light, you know, in an unalloyed positive light. I think there's absolutely positive aspects of it, but I think it's very dangerous to say, oh, you should view it as a gift because it's it's hard. <laughs> it's, it's really difficult. Yeah. Um, and there are things it can help you to do better. There are things it can make you better at. Um, but it's certainly, it would be quite crass i think to just say universally it's a blessing and you need to accept that and, and recognize it because it's it's not for a lot of people certainly in, in the overall picture so um yeah that the therapy absolutely helped me through that um and i think without it i'd have, I'd have really 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 struggled um and the other thing that it, 
it really helped with is it stopped me assigning all of my issues to ADHD. You know, I think I got to that point and it was, you know, as, as with any mental health issue, it's a big complex knot, you know, all yeah. these things tie into each other. And I was, you know, talking to my therapist every week, I'd say, oh, I think maybe this is, you know, the ADHD or maybe that. And he'd often say, it's not. <laughs> it's like, it might be a symptom of a symptom of a symptom, but if you assign everything to that, then you you make it unsolvable you don't ever approach it and you you know you, you don't make progress so i think that was the other thing that was mm. helpful for was just not putting everything in that adhd basket yeah uh, i've i've seen um people get confused with the mix of like mental health and neurodiversity and kind of like maybe uh, a few times seen it like mashed together when it's kind of like mental health it's just kind of its own unit and yeah. like you say like affects it kind of affects how you're doing on day to day with your, you know, what ADHD, whatever, um, yeah. and you know, like <laughs> vice versa. Uh, but it's kind of like it's not cause all link <laughs> between each other. Like you know, it's not because of ADHD. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's in, yeah. it's it's nice that you've had that um, uh, uh, sort of uh, grounding <laughs> to be like, hey, you know, I'm discuss your thoughts and you know get that either verified and talk through it basically. Yeah, that's so really cool. Yeah, I think particularly kind of discovering it later in life when, you know, it's, it's as I said, it's a, it's a real relief to kind of look back on stuff and go, oh, that wasn't just me being, uh, you know, a, a bit of an ass. That was that was a thing that was caused by this, you know, but it's very easy to then go back and go, oh, OK, all that stuff I did wrong was, was related to this. But actually, like, there's, there, there are issues to address as well, as there is for anyone. Um, and one of the interesting things that I found myself looking at a lot, I also have a thing called um, aphantasia. Mm. Um which is a complete blindness of the, the mind's eye. So it means I'm I'm unable to picture any mental imagery whatsoever. So if yeah. someone says, imagine a blue square, I can describe a blue square, I know what it looks like, but I can't see it in my head. I can't see, you know, my girlfriend's face. I can't picture my front door with any clarity. I can, like I say, I can describe them all for you. I can pick yeah. them out of a, a line of pictures, but I don't have any, any way to, to do that. And it, that was another thing which for years, I just assumed happened to everyone else. I just assumed that when people said, oh, count sheep to go to bed or, uh, you know, trying to do meditation to, to, you know, help with what turned out to be symptoms of ADHD and they were like, oh, pitch yourself here or there. It's like, are you really <laughs> No, surely you, this is just like a metaphor, right? When you say picture it, you just mean imagine it and think about it. Um, yeah, I feel like and... I'm like the exact opposite where I can sort of vividly visualize everything. But yeah. it's kind of when you say, oh, describe it, I'm just like, um, I can see it in my mind's eye. <laughs> I don't know what you're on about. <laughs> but, yeah, it, it, it's, it's strange that, like, you know, how people that can be literally like the polar opposite of you and just be like, oh, okay, you know, yeah. we all think differently. <laughs> yeah, I think, yeah, particularly for internal stuff like that. I mean, it's a good general metaphor for kind of neurodiversity and mental health, really. You know, you can't make assumptions about what anything anyone else is going through, yeah. even if they report a very similar experience. You know, if, if you'd sat me down in a room with 10 other people and said, right, all of you picture a giraffe and describe it i'd have given a very dissimilar description to everyone else in that room and you know no one else would have would have known that i didn't know that at the time yeah um so it's yeah it's really important to, to, to understand that no matter how somebody is presenting their life no matter what results they're able to to get out to the world they could well be facing a lot of struggles and a, a lot of obstacles that, that other people aren't yeah um so yeah 
Um, so out of interest then, obviously with like your career path and that, um, you know, sort of journalists and moving on from there and et cetera and doing your own thing, because um, now you've got like this diagnosis and you've kind of done a lot of reflective work, you know, how do you think it's like, you know, sort of interwoven within your career, you know, do you think it sort of like helped or hindered like, you know, where you worked or you kind of just, <laughs> you know, figured it out <laughs> at the time? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think... To be honest, if I didn't have ADHD, I probably wouldn't have ever got into the games industry. Um, I got, I mean, my actual route to my first job as a journalist in the games industry was so random. I was, I'd I'd moved down, I was at university in Nottingham. I'd stayed there for a couple of years doing crappy temp work. I couldn't couldn't decide what I wanted to do. I just kind of floated around. I got bored. I moved down to to Brighton where a lot of friends were. Mm. Did the same thing for a year, you know bad temp jobs i ended up temping for the police uh doing like backroom paperwork i absolutely hated it and i got so bored at one lunchtime of it and so distraught i ended up just sitting down at my lunch and just googling various dream jobs you know and i sat there for i was like well, what do i really want to do like taking the limits of what would i really really love to do and i literally just typed in uh writing about games uh brighton into google and the first thing that came up, the top Google result, was a uh, admin job at Eurogamer uh, that had been posted about three days before. And I just thought, fine, I'll go for it. I've got no qualifications. Uh, it's a completely random jump. It's you know just leaping in something. The pay wasn't amazing, but I just thought, I'm just going to do it. Mm. Um, and then I just rang them every day for two and a half weeks, as as Rupert Lohman can attest, until they just got bored and gave me the job, basically. And <laughs> <laughs> um, just worked my way up from, you know, from that very bottom role to, to being editor of, of, of GamesIndustry.biz sort of a decade later. Mm. Um, and like I say, I think if I hadn't have got that bored, if I hadn't have just had that ADHD kind of a, a attitude of, I'll just make it work. I'm not going to plan this because <laughs> I don't plan anything. You, know, you kind of throw yourself into something impulsively and go, this is fine um so yeah i think that that really helped but it also i mean there's a huge correlation between people uh who work in the industry who and particularly who really love video games and have uh particularly adhd as a a new neurodiversity right that Mm. constant stream of dopamine hits that you get when you're playing a game you know the constant uh controllable but a uh, very high level of stimulation, you know, is is perfect for people who are on ADHD, particularly, and some people are on parts of the autism spectrum, you know, who who just want a controllable flow of stimulation. Like it's it's perfect for that. Yeah. Um, and you know, just being able to stop what you're doing right in the middle of one thing and just start something completely different as well, you know, it really helps. So, I think ADHD played a huge role in my love of games as well. Um, yeah, that was going to be my next question of like, you know, is, do you think that's why, you know, games attract you so much? Obviously, you know now, obviously you've got the ADHD, but it's, you know, probably when you were younger, you know, it's probably the same reasons, you know, you were so into games, like you say, because you had that, like, like you know, the uh, uh, control dopamine hits and that. <laughs> yeah, and it was just a, it was a, a simple kind of interaction that, that, you know, I could understand as well. It was, you know, direct kind of cause and response. Uh, you know, I used to, I loved reading when I was a kid. I read a huge, huge amount. Um, again, that was you know this kind of going into worlds of kind of letting your your, your mind run riot. Um, it was a place where I could just take the brakes off my brain and, and just kind of uh, you know allow it to express itself without having to 
sort of slow myself down and calm myself down for, for other sorts of interaction. Um, mm. So, I mean, you know, I remember as a kid, I was constantly told you're, you're playing games too much and never gonna, that's never going to do you any good or you'll never get a job out of this. I remember being quite smug when I told my mum I actually did got first job in games and increasingly smug as, you know, the salary got better and the roles got better. Um, <laughs> I think she was still quite annoyed at the fact that I'd actually turned in. <laughs> <laughs> um, but in terms of like the actual career itself, I mean, I think it helped a lot. Certainly in the role at Games Industry Office, where my, my role was largely interviewing people, you know, mm. um, especially when it would be directly after a presentation or, a, a, you know, you've just had a load of information thrown at you and you just have to kind of process all of that, make sensible questions out of it, react on the fly, uh, you know, talking to extremely smart and, and accomplished people in a relatively high pressure environment. Um, being able to, to context switch and adapt to what someone's saying uh, mm. and that kind of high speed sort of empathy that, that some people with ADHD had, um, that helped a lot. Uh, that, that really did. Um, uh, and I think, you know, going to things like events, you know, going through a room and saying hello to, to 50 different people from one side or the other, mm. um, you know, someone who has a fair share of social anxiety as well, that ability to kind of just put on the ADHD suit and be like, right, I'm going to do this. So just kind of bounce around the room and get things done. Um, yeah. That really helped as well. Yeah. Uh, what about now in your current role? Do you feel like it's sort of like, you know, how to utilize it in a way that helps you? Yeah, I mean, there's a certain amount of context switching in my current role. You know, I do product marketing, but I do a lot of other stuff within the, the company that I sort of touch on. Um, I, you know, as this is the first role I've had where I've been conscious of the ADHD, I feel like I'm looking at it through a different lens. Okay. But I'm also very lucky in that uh, a senior member of the, the C-level team uh, has ADHD. You know, he's been very generous with his time talking about it, about mm. how uh, it affects him. Uh, he, he sort of, he uh, does take medication, but only every other day. Um, so he's been a really good sounding point uh, and a really kind of empathetic ear for talking about how, how it affects stuff. You know, it's it's a protected condition in the UK. You know, we, we have rights as, as people who, who live with ADHD to ask for uh, special dispensation. You know, we you can legally as a right and say, I, I need extra time to do this. Or you yeah. can say, that's a thing that I'm just not going to be good at you know I, I need a recording of this meeting because i can't take notes and uh, and listen you know yeah. or, or i'm going to miss stuff if someone talks quickly um so yeah it's it's much more been about ameliorating those kind of negative effects and understanding why i'm not naturally good at some stuff you know it's looking yeah. at organ like complex organizational tasks and going i know why i'm not good at that it's not just me being terrible it's not just me being lazy it's it's a thing that my brain struggles to do uh there might be ways around it there might just be a point where i say i can't do this i'm sorry this is not where my skills are yeah uh, and accepting that i think cruelly partly because of the kind of the, the the vicious cycle of of adhd is that you know your brain often tells you you have to be good at absolutely everything at least a little <laughs> bit so coming against those barriers can be can be quite difficult um but similarly with the aphantasia stuff you know looking at, at kind of visual tasks and just understanding why i'm not good at those or why i can't you know kind of mm. mentally move things around on a whiteboard and stuff like that um it's all it's 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 very positive for your mental health to to understand that they are not just shortcomings and things that you failed at yeah uh, so um that's been a that's been a real revelation um you know i certainly i i've 
thought more and more recently since I, I went through the titration period of like, you know, how do I how do I solve this? How do I deal with it? Because at points in the titration period where I was taking, you know, particularly things like Elvance, which were working, but just had these side effects. It felt amazing. You know, it was great to sit down and be like, I'm going to sit here for seven hours. And I'm just going to do stuff constantly. I'm going to get stuff done at the end of the day, being like, holy shit, that was productive. <laughs> we got so much done and I know what I'm going to do tomorrow. But then finishing work and not being able to switch that off, you know, just yeah. feeling like a machine the whole time was just not helpful for me. Some people, some people love it. It's very helpful for some people. For me, I just, I couldn't do it. I, I felt like I was being uh, kind of puppeted by someone else. You know, it just didn't feel like me for, yeah. for, for a long time. I guess it's a big, big risk of like um, wearing yourself out and not realizing it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think, yeah, for particularly at that time, you know, during the last couple of years, that mental exhaustion of constantly being on time, um, the the physical exhaustion, you know, like the, the dexamphetamine, you're literally taking pharmaceutical speed and that has a physical toll, you know, especially mm. if it's stopping you sleeping. Um, and it also has a, a, a slightly repressive effect on immune system. So, you know, during a global pandemic, I was just like, this this doesn't feel like the best time to be taking <laughs> something which which represses my immune system anyway. So um, sometimes I look back on that and I think, yeah, I wish I could have found a treatment that worked. You know, I yeah. would love to be, you know, in inverted commas, normal in that, that respect. Mm-hmm. Um, but then... Other times I look back and I see the things that it's enabled me to do, you know, the things it's empowered me to do, the things it's, it's made me better at. And I think, yeah. no, that's that's a huge part of who I am, you know. Um, yeah. And I think the risk at that, at that time, you know, having gone through this incredibly tumultuous period where everything in my life had changed, you know, I'd, I'd split up with a partner of 12 years. I'd changed, I'd left, um, you know, a, a stable job. I'd been made redundant for the first time. I was financially untethered. I was running my own business. The world was falling apart. I think at that point, there was a real danger of me just going, I'm going to change me as well by superimposing this kind of pharmaceutical effect on it and losing mm. losing kind of sight myself. And I'm very glad I didn't. You know, I'm very glad I, I, I kind of identified how being who I was was going to make me happy. Um, I think that was a really, really kind of important point because it was a it was a high risk at that point of me just going, this is how I solve this problem and therefore I can solve everything else through it. Yeah, so, yeah. Um, Do you then have like any kind of advice then for people that may have uh, recently got a diagnosis of ADHD or, you know, if looking into obviously getting into this industry in a way to, you know, it's kind of like for managing it or just like, you know, expectations, I guess, really? Yeah, I think a lot of it centers around being quite gentle on yourself and being quite forgiving with yourself. Um, I mean, there are there's a huge amount of people in the industry who will talk very openly about it, and that's that's been a real boon to me. You know, being able to go into the the, the industry Slack and just speak to people who'd had the problem. You know, even talking to you know, as I said about uh, seeing Lauren talking about it on Twitter and talking to her about it and her encouraging me to get the diagnosis talking about the stages involved that was hugely helpful so talk to other folks you know that people are willing to, to talk about it um get the help you need except that anyone else's route to um success isn't necessarily going to be the same as yours you know you might have great luck with with medication you might have great success with uh you know other uh, methods of, of of managing it you might not need to at all you might be able to turn it to your advantage so yeah be gentle on yourself ask advice um 
reflect on the way it's uh, affected you, um, but also maintain that kind of awareness of who you are and, and how it's a part of you. Don't try to don't try and surgically remove it from your life because there's no way you can do that without cutting out a hugely important part of yourself. I think. Yeah. Um, and I think in terms of industries, you know, the the games industry is very uh, understanding of, of a lot of neurodiversities. We have a uh, an over-representation of a lot of neurodiversities that are much more likely to speak to someone who understands it. Um, but I think the nature of a lot of the work lends itself relatively well to it as well. And, and yeah. there are there are roles which can absolutely turn uh, the aspects of, of, of a lot of neurodiversities, particularly ADHD, to an advantage. Yeah, I've noticed a lot of um, diversity in the roles in terms of people with ADHD. It's not just like, you know, oh, it's all programmers or QA people or artists. Like, it is literally across the spectrum of roles that you see in the industry, which... Yeah. It's great because, like, you know, it's, again, like you said, you know, you're not trying to fit a mold of what is the expectation of an ADHD person in the games industry and the expectations of they should be in this sort of role. It's actually, you know, like you say, it's, they can do <laughs> any role that sort of takes their fancy and, you know, like you say, you know, uh, adapt them, you know, be themselves <laughs> in that role. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot of support available. I mean, um it's very difficult in the UK now to get that diagnosis and get the, the, the kind of medication, particularly for a number of reasons. I mean, the NHS is kind of is struggling a, a great deal at the moment. Everything's delayed, but there was a big increase in people seeking diagnosis over the pandemic. Um, mm. You know, when I, I spoke to the, the, the doctors who I dealt with, it was clear that the kind of isolation uh, was exacerbating a lot of these effects because one of the certainly one of the things that I found was that I was able to again inverted commas normalize my behavior by reflecting that of other people around me you know from everything I was saying about not inter not interrupting or um, you know trying to do more eye contact or working really hard and remembering people's names and following conversations um, that was mostly done by watching other people do it and go okay this is what is acceptable in, in social interactions and i think once people were on their own at home they didn't have all these distractions they didn't have other things to focus on they suddenly thought hang on this is, I'm, I'm going a bit going a bit spare here. so there was a huge increase in diagnosis that put things uh slowed things down a great deal uh the external uh company i went to this uh, psychology uk i think now has stopped taking on new patients because they just ran at such a backlog so there's something like a two and a half three year waiting list now to get a diagnosis and to start titration yeah um, yeah which is tough it's really really hard there there are obviously private uh routes but they are expensive it means that you will end up having to pay for your own medication in the future and it's yeah. you know some of it's cheaper than others but it's none of it's cheap cheap so it can be very very frustrating uh, uh but as i say like so much of the way i've been able to get my head around the diagnosis is through talking to other people and that's yeah that's generally free and readily available uh, if you're if you're willing to be brave about it and, and and you're lucky enough to find people who are happy to talk about it so yeah, that's um, yeah. yeah. Um, this is a perfect time for us to get onto the last part of the podcast which uh, already ends on the the fun note <laughs> <laughs> um, and just talk about games and obviously the games that kind of like uh, have impacted you in a meaningful way whether that's just through pure joy or just like you know because they've done something quite unique that you love 
so is there a game that you would instantly go to if somebody asked you like oh no the fabled what's your favorite game question <laughs> yeah i think um my kind of go-to answer is uh, is dwarf fortress um okay. which is a oh I mean, it's an incredible game it was it's been being made over the last i think 13 14 maybe even 15 years now by uh one guy and his, his brother uh tarn and zach adams um they're you know obviously indie developers american indie developers they've, they've built this uh incredibly complex kind of simulation uh sort of stroke management game called draw fortress where you get seven dwarves and you wander off and you dig a hole and you live in it until something comes to kill you basically um, <laughs> it's but it's i mean i first got into it um because i was able to download it and play it on any computer it was you know it's relatively it's it was all done in ascii so it was all relatively uh, low uh demand on resources it also because it looks like a spreadsheet meant that i could quite often get away with playing it when i was supposed to be working <laughs> um but it's and it's just it's a phenomenal achievement you know like it's it's one of those kind of games that i think will be uh a real reference point for kind of the history of games once we kind of get to that that point you know when people are, are talking about the, the fundamental way that games changed over the years because it's just got this incredible procedural generation system where it creates entire worlds and uh pantheons and myths and legends every time you start the game uh it's incredibly complicated and very very fiddly which you know for adhd was perfect um it's very much got that kind of like just 10 more minutes kind of thing <laughs> anything can kind of happen at any point um but just the the achievement that it represents uh for the for the guys who've made it i mean i've met tarn adams a couple of times he's a he's a really really lovely guy um and you know really really cares about the community they are in the process now of, of actually making it for steam uh it's it's always been funded by um donations it's it's free to download oh, wow. um so they're just about to hopefully release it for um steam this year or maybe early next um under the uh due date on steam i think it says time is an illusion um so, <laughs> <Engage> development, uh, definitely <laughs> yeah so when it'll actually come out i don't know but it is it's absolutely amazing i'd recommend everyone to try it as i say it's it's free uh it's it's absolutely mind-blowing the complexity and the, the passion and love that's gone into it um so i think that yeah that would probably be what i'd say was my my go-to favorite i also played a hell of a lot of the total war warhammer games yeah um i used to absolutely love uh you know i was always a kind of nintendo kid growing up i can i think if if i tried to remember like I was I was looking at your your points in the email about you know what's the that your fondest memory of games and you know as someone with ADHD and aphantasia memories are not strong for me <laughs> they are I don't have a lot of strong memories and virtually none of them have uh visual qualities when I remember them because I don't form visual memories in the same way but I do very much remember sitting in the car uh having just bought uh zelda link to the past on snes when i was a kid um and sitting in the car park of sainsbury's where my mum went in to do the grocery shopping and just desperately just being so desperate to get home and play this game <laughs> i can i can remember the smell of the 
the manual, you know, <laughs> sitting and, and reading this manual back to back and just being so desperate to get home and play. I can remember the smell of the glue on it. Um, and that, yeah, that's <laughs> it's such not just a strong games memory, but it's such a strong memory for me anyway, when I yeah. don't have many of those. It's, it's really quite a special kind of thing for me to to be able to kind of revisit that in my head you know that point of that happy point of my childhood it's such a rare thing for me to be able to do um but that's actually a weirdly important memory for me you know this idea of just sitting in a car in a car park reading a a a 12 page manual and not even playing the game itself you know um it's it's bizarre but that is yeah one of the strongest memories i have to associate with gaming i mean i love the game and I, i remember you know, playing bits of it, but that is by far the strongest memory I have associated with it, which is quite strange. Yeah, yeah, definitely have that sort of feeling of like, you know, sort of childhood memories are very intricately linked into a gaming moment. Like, you know, I always vividly remember like coming downstairs to see my mum has been up all night playing Crash Bandicoot, unlocking all the gems <laughs> and hidden levels. I just remember her just looking knackered because she's obviously going to have to go to work <laughs> like straight after that <laughs> and take us to school and stuff. So, yeah, it's, it's funny that, that kind of, it's always felt like linked to me in terms of, like, you know, a childhood memory, just that sort of, like, you know, seeing my mum sort of being so obsessed with, a, you know, a, a video game when she's not a gamer in my eyes. And, <laughs> and it's just that sort of, like, oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that those, I mean, yeah, memories of, like, especially seeing your parents get into games is is really fascinating and i mean my my uh stepdad bought me my spectrum when i was i don't know seven i suppose six or seven uh and then bought me my snares when i was sort of 11 or 12 um and again you know those are a really special memories especially sitting with a parent and, and actually enjoying uh, enjoying games and, and and like you say coming in finding a parent playing games on their own like i think that's such a strong identification moment to just go oh wow you are you're actually just like me you like this stuff you're not, you're not just a person who's there to tell me off and make me do stuff i don't like um yeah i think that's a really nice moment <laughs> yeah um so yeah that's pretty much all we have time for um this week and uh, so it's great like chatting with you um and i think you've you know even just sharing your sort of like personal history with like adhd really will sort of help other people kind of have a you know their own sort of getting used to the, the idea of ADHD themselves and how that like you know interlocks into their life. <laughs> yeah, um, I, mean, I hope so. Yeah, I mean I'm always happy to ask answer questions on it. So I mean you can find me on on Twitter at Danbo Jones. You can find me in the UK Games Industry Slack. Always happy to answer questions and, and offer what help I can with anything related to that. So. And that's perfectly answered my second question of where people can find you. <laughs> so, <yeah. laughs> that's great. Um, so yeah, that is pretty much all we have time for. You know, um, new episodes obviously every two weeks. So make sure you subscribe, like, do all the podcasty things and make us grow. <laughs> like you know, all the social media words that the young kids know. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I can't wait to see you next time uh, when we have a new guest who you know also identifies in the disabled or neurodiverse uh, communities. Uh, what happens to working games? Um, so keep tuned and so see you next time bye thanks again dan and make sure you follow him online all links will be in the description make sure you follow dna of games on itunes spotify or youtube as well as finding us under twitter at minicatscic so join the discussion online see you next time